Story two of Elsie and the Child, a tale of Riceyman's Steps and other stories by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story two, during dinner. The lounge, a large apartment of irregular shape, full of cosy corners and grouped easy chairs, inviting to intimacies, and lit by rose-shaded lamps embedded in the carved ceiling, and screened from the outer world by thick rosy curtains, was perfectly empty. Warm and well-cushioned and softly carpeted, it waited in silence with its discreetly voluptuous engravings and statuettes, its silver trophies of sport, and its gigantic ferns and palm for the end of dinner when it would be comfortably filled by ladies and gentlemen who until they went up in the lift to bed had nothing to do except digest and play cards the dining-room was separated from the lounge by a glass wall through which the diners aided by their high priests priests and acolytes could be seen dining with dignity and ceremony not a sound came from the dining-room through the glass wall its inhabitants might have been an optical illusion on the other side of the lounge was a much smaller apartment called by the hotel proprietor the sunroom and by certain facetious guests the grill-room its semicircular front wall was wholly window and if there was any sunshine this room caught it and imprisoned it and presented it to the person who cared to occupy the row of easy chairs ranged in front of the vast expanse of glass the sunroom was cold at night on this night its curtains had not been drawn nor its lamps lit through the window the nocturnal pleasure town offered itself with its piers and its promenade all festooned and jewelled in electricity and its motors gliding to and fro and a little ragged boy crying evening papers in the east wind just under the window the sunroom was not quite dark partly because of the radiance from the streets and partly because of the radiance from the glowing lounge within it gazing forth at the magic spectacle of the town could be seen a young man in a dinner jacket he was tall with a small head he had race and distinction he had evidently done all that was proper to his station and age from fighting in the trenches to joining the right clubs and although he held himself carelessly and was ever so little negligent of his attire but not of his glossy hair he had the authentic chic which the most meticulous and earnest dandies in paris try in vain to match he gazed at the town for quite a long time and then turned and gazed into the brightness of the lounge he was waiting the lounge was waiting then a fat middle-aged woman with dirty dress and dirty apron sidled apologetically into the lounge carrying a dirty tool-box her tools consisted chiefly of various brushes and rags she knelt down before the great patent stove that burnt coal economically and yet brightly near the middle of the lounge and garnished and tidied and rubbed the stove and swept its hearth and sidled apologetically out again she knew she was an eyesore in the rich room and ought to be ashamed of herself for being visible in paradise and once more the lounge and the young man waited 
then a bell rang and the lift went up the lift shaft surrounded by the staircase ended in the lounge itself so that the traffic and burdens of the lift might provide interest for the loungers in the lounge the lift descended bearing a young woman it was a pity that the lounge happened to be empty of sightseers for the young woman was worth witnessing a blonde rather plump and not very tall she had a face lovely in form and tense glinting light brown eyes and hair a large richly promising mouth and a smile that was habitual the arched curve of her eyebrows added to her agreeable and eager expression a note of constant slightly thrilled surprise having a perfect complexion and lips she had of course plentifully employed rouge and powder having the most adorable fingernails she had of course most elaborately painted them it would not have been decent for her to show herself as nature had so exquisitely made her she was magnificently dressed her jewels though few might have been pawned for at least a thousand pounds she emerged from the lift well aware of her costly perfection but not a bit conceited about it she glanced questioningly round the empty lounge with a look of half innocent and half initiated half jaunty and half bashful the truth was that she had been married nearly three weeks and this was not the first hotel of her honeymoon therefore she considered herself an old hand learned in the world's ways omniscient on the subject of love and husbands and not on any account to be mistaken for part of a honeymoon couple but also she had doubts concerning her competence as a woman of experience and her great knowledge sometimes frightened her nevertheless she knew that she was utterly delicious and all-powerful and that the whole earth ought to be grateful to her for residing on it satisfied that there really was nobody in the lounge she tripped up to the glass partition and spied cautiously upon the dining-room then puzzled she crossed the lounge again and peered into the twilight of the sunroom ah there you are i was wondering where you'd got to she spoke so vivaciously and charmingly and lovingly that you would have thought that the place being quite deserted the young husband would have sprung at the young wife whom less than a month ago he had snatched away in all her virginal innocence from her weeping parents and kissed her on the spot but no the young husband did not move he did not even look at the young wife he glared aside at nothing his mouth worked he bit his lip his hands dug themselves into the very deeps of his pockets he was in a state of considerable emotional disturbance whereas the young wife whose intimate acquaintance with the male sex was limited to a week or two and who surely ought to have been seriously agitated the wife maintained a beautiful calm aren't you coming in to dinner she asked sweetly and simply no grunted the husband and then after a little pause added i'm not but what's the matter she demanded in gentle complete amazement phil what is the matter in that moment philip as hundreds of millions of young men and old men before him stood absolutely astounded at woman's power of duplicity 
here was a young woman whom he had really believed to be quite different in her nature from all other women whatsoever an honest sincere genuine straight young woman a pal as well as a wife and now every tone of her voice and every word she said and every movement of her hands lied to him lied foolishly without the least hope of deceiving him she asked what was the matter but she knew what was the matter exactly and entirely what was the matter she knew that he was profoundly hurt and anxious her odious tranquillity proved that she was insensible to his suffering i am not going into dinner until that fellow at the next table has come out philip announced with finality and then the little pause and then the clinching phrase and so now you know she gave a low light laugh oh it's that you're still worrying about that she said just as though ten minutes earlier they had not had quite a scene in the bedroom about the fellow who sat by himself at the next table her method of conducting an argument was exasperating to the last degree i told you i shouldn't said philip with restrained savageness he was in such spiritual pain that her extraordinary physical attractiveness became loathsome to him his evident extreme distress alarmed her somewhat and she thought she would do well to repeat what she had said upstairs and what she had sworn never to repeat but don't i tell you i've never even spoken to him i don't know his name even the man is a cad that's certain i don't see that he's a cad no women often like cads but he's a cad all the same he makes eyes at you all the time at every meal and upon my soul you smile at him do you think i'm blind i think you're very silly she replied this time with conviction i can't understand you at all i never heard of such a thing i suppose you think i ought to feel flattered by your jealousy jealousy he sneered but i'm not she still spoke evenly and kindly somewhat like a mother to a child though she was by six years his junior she imagined that her equanimity was very clever but it maddened philip he began to lose control of himself and found a terrible satisfaction in doing so the dreadful thoughts suspicions accusations criticisms condemnations about our best friends which lie hidden at the bottom of the hearts of all of us and upon the concealment of which depends the safety and decency of human relations rose up unchecked to the surface and escaped in speech he called his wife a flirt he referred to her ruthless hunger for pleasure and luxury to her egotism to her vanity to her faulty upbringing to the absurdities of her parents and other relatives and to his own confiding trustful foolish nature which his wicked wife had known how to deceive i'm afraid i've married a jealous monster said she in reply sadly and then with an assumption of courage still there it is and i expect i must make the best of it anyhow if you aren't going in to dinner i am you'd better take a stroll the exercise will calm you and pull you together smiled at the man how grotesque she had never smiled at the man she had smiled at the room smiled generally nothing more the man was absolutely nothing to her 
must she scowl to please phil he had gone clean off his head she had always suspected that he was inclined to be a bit jealous but this scene was indeed too much it was incredible tragic catastrophic it was the ruin of all her chances of happiness she thought of the wedding only the other day and of his tenderness and his passion she turned away with a fixed expressionless smile towards the dining-room she would see the thing through she would eat and drink though she choked for it she did not guess that if she had burst into tears and fled upstairs he would have followed her furious at first and then contrite philip watched her depart his hand behind him touched a blind cord he pulled at it and it broke and a large blind rattled down with a noise astonishingly like thunder a stout cord a cord nearly a quarter of an inch in diameter and he had he thought scarcely touched it and yet it had broken between his fingers as a bit of cotton might have broken the noise and confusion of the blind seemed to him somehow to symbolize what had happened to his marriage he suddenly felt exhausted and also frightened and he dropped into a chair as after a long harrowing night he had ducked back into some sort of semi-safety in the Ypres salient he was quite alone ethel had disappeared into the distant dining-room the whole brooding expanse of the deserted lounge lay between him and humanity he ought according to his own code to have sworn and raged manfully but there was no occasion to keep up appearances and he moaned to himself weakly despairingly oh dear oh dear oh dear that was all then he was aware in the gloom of a face peering at him around the flap of a huge easy-chair that was slightly turned from the direction of the window he was not alone he had not been alone the episode from beginning to end had had an unseen unguessed spectator philip discountenanced and wondering how he ought to behave in the very startling circumstances did not move i know exactly how you feel said the spectator in a quiet worn voice and so naturally so simply and amicably that philip could not take offence at the unheard-of familiarity the man rose from his chair and slowly approached philip and stood close to him a little grey-haired man apparently about sixty philip had seen him once or twice in the hotel he always came very late into the dining-room for meals eating by himself he was well dressed and of good deportment and yet there was something queer disconcerting about him about his demeanour his accent and about the very quality of his voice he was both apologetic and haughty both hard and sensitive both common and distinguished as for his accent phil could not put a name to it further when he spoke his lips scarcely moved there's nobody can understand you better than i can the man continued and there's nobody got a better right than me to warn you that if you can't control that insane jealousy of yours you have a fair chance of a tragedy in your life look at you look at your face you're all shaking you aren't a man you're what remains of a man after a devil has had possession of him and devastated him see here 
philip began in sharp but feeble protest he was somewhat overawed as much by the man's choice of words as by his extraordinary self-assurance you won't mind me talking to you like this the man stopped him almost grandly when i tell you that i'm crary he spoke as though he were announcing a fact of terrific dazzling unique interest crary philip repeated the name murmuringly as he might have repeated smith or jones the crary i am afraid uh, do you mean to say you've never heard of the crary case the crary hamwich case mr crary still spoke quietly but in his tone there was utter amazement and some resentment his sensitive pride had been wounded by philip's ignorance he was really hurt plainly he felt that he had a grievance well, i'm afraid i haven't oh well mr crary gloomily accepted the situation i suppose you're too young to remember even the greatest public events of the nineties but believe me that for weeks once i was the most celebrated man in this country and now you don't even uh, such is fame such is fame good god sir i'm in the famous trial series and even today i stand alone nobody else has been through what i've been through nobody oh what was it well i can't tell it you all take too long so you never heard of the murder of mr hamwich i murdered him from jealousy that's why i thought i must speak to you will you listen nobody'll come into the lounge for twenty minutes yet he glanced around yes answered philip still shakily he did not want to listen but he was intimidated by the singular mien of the little man and by the conjunction of the words jealousy and murder and by the horror of his own frightful feelings only a few minutes earlier a murderer in front of him why had the murderer not been hung how came he to be at large a guest in high-class hotels the little man proceeded i was in love with mrs hamwich as much as you are with that young lady who's just gone i assume she's your wife she is mrs hamwich was young mr crary's voice trembled and i was a bit younger mr hamwich was forty-five i say i was in love with mrs hamwich desperately and mrs hamwich was in love with me we couldn't help it we didn't know what to do she wouldn't do anything wrong she wouldn't leave her husband a jewess i ought to explain they're like that jewesses are i had to give her up that was in the afternoon in a tea-shop mr and mrs hamwich lived in canonbury you know north london i don't know why i went up to canonbury that night and into their street i saw them walking home together he held her arm he was owning her a very correct gentleman in business i'd nothing against him except that he was her husband and owning her i couldn't stand the way he owned her it drove me mad i was so moved that i could not bear my emotion it was unbearable i had to ease it and there was only one way the devil rushed me across the road and i stabbed mr hamwich in the back twenty-two times they said afterwards with a pair of scissors that delphine that was mrs hamwich had given me for a keepsake oh i knew what i was doing only it wasn't me it was somebody else in me i enjoyed doing it 
yes i enjoyed it i'd never been so happy in my life it was awful my happiness was awful awful afterwards i was very ill of course they arrested me but they arrested mrs hamwich as well they made out that she had planned the murder with me urged me to do it they brought evidence for that scissors and so on letters but it was an absolute lie an absolute lie i was staggered neither she nor i had had the slightest idea that i was going to kill him you don't think you're ever going to kill anybody do you no more did i till the moment came they tried us together i had money lots and i spent a lot of it on the trial not for myself no hope for me but for her we were both convicted and sentenced to death i thought the jury was insane i fainted in the dock she didn't faint i never saw her again there was no appeal in those days there was only the home secretary to go to the newspapers were full of us for a fortnight tremendous petitions for reprieve then at last i heard that the home secretary had refused to interfere in my case that was the day before the day they wouldn't tell me anything about delphine prison rules not a word could i get i was allowed no visits i was sure she was reprieved they'd put me in another cell nobody said anything but i knew it was the condemned cell i was never left alone two special warders all the time very friendly fellows that is they got friendly after a day or two but they wouldn't talk about her not a word had orders i suppose only i didn't want to talk about anything else it wasn't being hanged that troubled me so much no it was remorse you don't know what remorse is you can't it's the most dreadful thing can happen to a man remorse for killing mr hamwich of course but far more far more far more for having got delphine into this ghastly ruin this ghastly ruin i say i raged about that i couldn't believe the stupidity of the jury or the unscrupulousness of the crown counsel i couldn't believe it was all true i had one thought in my head all day and nearly all night injustice monstrous injustice to her and i'd done it i'd brought it about in two minutes a minute and what had made me do it i don't know sometimes i couldn't credit that i had done it it was rather as if it was something i had read about in a paper well it was the governor himself came to tell me my petition for a reprieve was refused i asked him about the petition for mrs hamish he got stiff and awkward at once he said i know nothing about mrs hamish she is not in my charge and i've no responsibility for her i said but she's bound to be reprieved he said yes well then i made sure that she was reprieved they couldn't hang her couldn't a woman and innocent i went easier in my mind i wondered how i could ever have doubted that she'd get off in the end mr crary ceased and turned from philip seated in front of him and looked out of the half of the window not covered by the fallen blind not a sound from the empty illuminated lounge it seemed as if the lounge was waiting for mr crary to be executed but what next philip demanded now impatient excited 
feverish i'm not telling this well said mr crary i've never told it before to a soul and i'm forgetting things i'm mixing things up i'd forgotten about chapel on execution sunday that's the last sunday before the execution i was taken into chapel by myself then after the others and i sat in the red pew at the back pew with red curtains across it the condemned pew nobody could see i was there but all the other prisoners knew i was there and they knew i knew and once when i met a convict in a corridor how he turned his head away i asked my warders why he did that they both blushed one of them told me afterwards the reason it isn't etiquette in a prison for convicts to look at a condemned man not nice they think he won't like it you see another pause mr crary had not faced philip again he was talking quietly but with slight emphasis now and then to the street to the glittering piers and the promenade and the motors gliding to and fro in the pleasure town philip sat up in his easy chair and leaned forward and glared intently at mr crary's back well all that's nothing after all after he'd been to see me in my cell the governor sent for me to his office at night so i was taken to his office my warders stayed outside the governor said to me crary he said sit down and have a cigar so i did i was as calm as calm then he said crary i'm not a religious man i don't know anything about heaven and i don't know anything about hell that's the chaplain's business not mine and i dare say this last few days you've had to listen to all you wanted to in that line he said but he said you're going to die tomorrow morning before you die he said i should like to know you're sorry for having killed that man sir i said i'm damned sorry and so i was and so i am when i got back to my cell they lighted the lamp outside that shines through the little window into the cell no other light i might have written things on the slate that they give you but i didn't didn't want to do anything one of my warders asked me to play draughts and i did just to please him then i lay down on the bed without taking off my clothes the other warder came back he said aren't you going to undress crary no i said i'm not they didn't say anything to that i slept all night next morning when i woke up i said what time is it and they said you've got two hours yet try to sleep a bit more but i didn't try one of the warders went out and came back in a minute or two with a bundle it was my clothes my dark gray suit i was to be hung in my own clothes i liked that but they wouldn't let me put on my collar and necktie you see how do you feel they asked me all right yes i said all right then they brought me my breakfast which i'd asked for two poached eggs and the tea in a can and the mug i ate it all and a cigarette is it raining i asked no they said but it has been i didn't feel as if anything was real i felt as if it was a tale a fairy tale yes fairy tale then the prison clock struck i had another hour yet then it was the chaplain in his surplice came in the warders went out don't i remember the keys rattling when the chaplain had finished the governor came in and the chief warder and the assistant executioner and the doctor cell was full of people 
they gave me some brandy they were all very nice and i told them so i didn't ask about delphine or anything then the assistant executioner fastened my arms i began to feel queer but that was nothing to when the chaplain started to say the burial service at me as if i was dead another thing i forgot to tell you there were two doors to my cell one of them had never been opened well it was opened now we went out in a procession and the chaplain went on with the burial service and there was the execution shed or whatever they call it just outside and the under-sheriff and one or two others were waiting there and the executioner was waiting for me on the scaffold he had a red moustache and i thought he looked terribly ill and queer so i went up on the scaffold i tell you i couldn't believe it was true and the executioner put a bag over my head and i couldn't see of course and then there was a thud and i couldn't make out what had happened i heard the governor's voice very excited and nervous he said never mind him never mind him you must do it you must do it and the assistant executioner said no sir not after that i won't do it not if it was fifteen hundred pounds instead of fifteen not after that i only found out afterwards what it was had happened the executioner had had a fit they took the bag off my head again and i went back to the cell and they were all as white as a sheet every one of them my sentence was commuted to penal servitude for life i needn't tell you there's no such thing really as a life sentence after about a quarter of a century you're let out a quarter of a century you sir must have been aged about three when my executioner had a fit all the time you were growing up governess school college i suppose fighting i suppose falling in love i suppose i was in prison thinking about what mad jealousy leads to and i'm still thinking about it and after what i've seen and heard of you to-night i'm thinking about it now more than i have for years i'm not fifty not fifty exclaimed philip in amazement not fifty but i've lived through whole centuries and i haven't told you all yet i haven't told you the worst part at the very moment when my executioner had his fit my innocent delphine was executed in another prison yard in london she hadn't been reprieved they'd allowed me to deceive myself for fear i might go mad someone actually proposed that the other executioner who had dealt with delphine should come along the next morning and deal with me the scheme fell through as they say for one thing the fellow refused executioners are very superstitious i've had all that to think over for a quarter of a century of course i don't feel it so much now not nearly so much i'm numbed you do get numbed i go about the world numbed nobody knows me naturally i don't call myself crary he turned at last sharply to face philip and said with a sort of explosion if i wasn't numbed i should have smashed this plate-glass window with my fist long before i'd finished telling you my story at this point there was a thud just outside the sunroom in the lounge philip gave an involuntary cry for an instant he thought it was the executioner in a fit astounding delusion on his part the thud was the noise of the fall of philip's young wife 
girlishly repenting her resolution to dine alone and leave philip to recover unaided from his madness ethel had quitted the dining-room crossed silently the silent lounge and intimidated and enthralled by the discourse of mr crary to the window had hidden herself behind the wall which separated the sunroom from the easternmost part of the lounge she had withstood the terror of the recital as long as she could and then just after the climax had faltered and dropped in the arched opening between the rooms she lay there in an ineffective posture rather bunched up with her lovely raiment and jewels all disordered and her face as dead white as the faces of the officials at the execution where the criminal was not executed mr crary saw her first and pointed to her philip turned in obedience to mr crary's scaring finger he sprang from his chair to the archway and knelt beside her not in the least knowing what to do let her lie she'll come around in a minute said mr crary proudly with his unmoving lips philip was himself ready to faint under the fearful shocks of mr crary's tale with its tremendous moral for the jealous mr crary had put philip in terror of the possibilities of his own instincts the husband felt as though he had just escaped a catastrophe for which none but himself could have been blamed and as though the catastrophe avoided might recur soon or late in the future if he did not watch over himself night and day he was nearly stunned by the revelation of himself to himself and also he was exquisitely and profoundly touched by the yielding compunction of his wife who after leaving him to his folly had out of sheer loving good nature come back to wheedle and cajole him out of his folly his passion for his wife flamed up burning white in those moments it was as overpowering as the passion of mr crary for delphine he stroked her cold neck marvelling at the fineness of it and at the complex and delicate perfection of the organism which was she his sensations had the surpassing inexpressible intensity of which people it is said sometimes die and the empty lounge brooded with its rosy lamps and its flickering fire indifferent and yet warmly indulgent upon the group and outside the gleaming motor-cars glided in curves against the glittering electric background of the promenade and the piers and through the glass wall of the dining-room waiters attentive and deferential could be seen passing to and fro and there was not a sound and mr crary contemplated with pride what he had done the stupendous impression he had made the mighty lesson he had taught after a quarter of a century of martyrized subjection mr crary had risen suddenly to majesty to domination to sovereignty he had imprinted himself upon his fellow-creatures he was saved from futility the sublime horror of his tragedy clothed him he lived again returning life-blood tinged the young girl's cheeks philip kissed them with abandoned and tender violence his passion was to shield and cherish her to surround her with protective affection to exist uniquely in and for her his passion was by extraordinary deeds of devotion to earn her forgiveness i'm all right she murmured feebly he picked her up in his arms light 
light as down she had no weight in his arms he carried her off swiftly towards the lift the pale wisp of the train of her dress dragging along the carpet the auburn girl and the yellow girl in their tight-fitting black caged in the reception office before the vast books of account these saw the pair first and caught their breath then the hall porter meditating between notices of theatres trains and charabancs saw them and started officiously he was too late they were in the lift the gate banged the lift shot up showing through its bars a glimpse of a white skirt against a black coat it was gone aloft the doors of the dining-room opened you can say what you like the voice of a young woman emerging was heard breaking the enchantment of the lounge i prefer creme de menthe to green chartreuse end of story two